Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Francis Gilles. He's a specialist on security, energy, and political trends in North Africa and the Western Mediterranean, and an associate senior researcher at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs. From 1981 to 1995, he was a North Africa correspondent for the Financial Times and has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Le Monde, El País, and I'm pleased to say he's a regular contributor to the Arab Digest newsletter. Francis, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, for inviting me. Now, in a recent article you wrote for us, you raised a very interesting prospect that Algeria could help to deliver Europe from the shackles of Russian energy supply. And as you noted, there are caveats and challenges. But before we get to those, a simple question. Is Algeria, is the Algerian government capable of taking advantage of the opportunity the war in Ukraine has presented? Well, this is a very good question. Um, In recent years, Algeria has had an energy policy where the price of electricity in Algeria, and it comes mostly from gas, is one of the lowest in the world. It doesn't even cover costs. And the powers that be are reluctant to change that for fear of social unrest. This has led to an increasing proportion of Algerian gas production going to domestic use. Uh, so that is the, uh, the difficult fact we are faced with. And furthermore, until 2019, the laws were very restrictive about foreign investment. Uh, that has changed uh, since the end of 2019. Of course, there was the COVID crisis. So we are now seeing the first major contracts and the first major contracts signed with Italy last November. which is attracting foreign companies back into Algeria. And in recent weeks, of course, there's been a rush of foreign companies to Algeria to look at the possibilities of investing in Algeria in research, searching for new oil and gas, particularly. So things are moving. How quickly they will move is difficult to say. One, the... Sonatrach, the oil and gas company, is recovering from 10 years of very confused management of corruption trials in the early 10s. Nonetheless, this company of 120,000 people, which is the largest in Africa, does boast many good engineers. And there is no reason why Sonatrach will not recover in the next few years if it has the full backing of the state. So the answer is mixed. Uh, Another point to make, which I think is important, is that uh, foreign investment wasn't just reluctant to go into Algeria, the development of Algerian gas fields because of uh, Algerian bureaucracy or very tight rules. Since the 2000s, the European Union has built a policy of energy liberalization, which has meant that gas contracts have become shorter and shorter And the Algerians are not the only producers who've pointed out that you cannot predicate the development of a gas field, which might take 10 or 15 years, on contracts of, say, two or three years. It is totally illogical. It doesn't make economic sense. Of course, with what's happened with Russia and Ukraine, the EU is thoroughly hoist on its own petard because it's now desperate to find more gas But if you have short-term contracts, that makes 
the life of the buyer, very, very difficult indeed. Well, that leads me then to my second question, uh, which is a supplementary to the first. Is Europe capable of seeing the opportunity? Well, Europe has seen the opportunity, at least Italy has seized the opportunity very quickly. Italy saw the crisis coming in a way when in November of last year, the president of Italy paid a state visit to Algeria and a major contract was signed, uh, over $1 billion between Eni and Sonatrac, the Algerian state company. Uh, this is important for a number of reasons. One, the cooperation between the Italians and the Algerians in oil and gas predates independence in 1962. Why? Because Enrico Mattei, the founder of Eni, advised the provisionary government of Algeria, which was negotiating for independence from France in 1662, on oil and gas. History reminds us that General de Gaulle wanted to detach the Sahara, where oil and gas had been found in the mid-50s, from what was going to become the new Republic of Algeria. He failed, and the Italians helped the Algerian nationalists, if you will, or freedom fighters, as they were then called, to frame their oil and gas policy. So there is a deep political understanding between Italy and Algeria. Second point, the first ever underwater gas pipeline was built with Italian technology provided by Saipem between Algeria and Italy via Tunisia and the Strait of Sicily. It was inaugurated in 1983 and it has always functioned very smoothly ever since. Third point, which is important for Algeria, is that Italy has the technical ability, the companies, Saipem, uh, um, Fincanteria, all kinds of companies, it has a know-how in oil and gas, and uh, LNG plants, and all, all this uh, chain of oil and gas and condensates. Italy can provide Algeria with uh, all it needs in terms of technology, building pipelines, exploration, the Italians are very, very good at this game, not just any, but a whole host of companies. So these are the reasons why the agreement with Italy is particularly important. When you say, is Europe appraised of what it might get out of Algeria? I would simply point out that the visit of the prime minister Mario Draghi to Algiers on Monday, accompanied by uh, the head of ENI, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, etc., is important. Why? Because Mario Draghi, as former head of the European Central Bank, as former uh, member of Goldman Sachs, is really a man of power. He's at the heart of the power structure of the West. So his visit to Algiers does not go unnoticed by anybody. Okay, but uh, Europe has tended, as you said, with these short-term contract approaches to rather turn its back on Algeria. Uh, and I'm thinking of how easily Putin was able to cause Germany to rely almost completely on Russian gas. Uh, is, is there not a history there that's granted Italy 
has has had that edge because of its history. But otherwise, has Europe not rather spurned the opportunity? Well, I mean, France buys important quantities of gas from Algeria. Spain buys important quantities of gas uh, from Algeria. So does Greece and so does Turkey. Um, now, the fact that Europe, particularly the Germans and some of the Eastern European countries and Italy put too many of their eggs or all their eggs in one basket, Russia, that's a problem of confusing two issues. Uh, the basic uh, philosophy in Germany was that trade, greater trade would lead to somehow opening Russia, would make it more democratic. It's the same argument with China. Well, a number of people have been suspicious of this argument and haven't really bought it over the years, but the Germans did, and they're hoist on their own pitar. The Germans actually signed an agreement with Algeria to buy LNG back in 1978, and then they walked away from it. And there has been no explanation to date. I have spoken in, the re in recent weeks to the Algerians who negotiated that contract with Rurgas in 1978. To this day, 40 years later, they do not have an answer as to why the Germans walked away from this contract. And President Ronald Reagan made the point to Chancellor Helmut Schmidt back in 1983 in, during a state visit to Germany, why do you not buy at least some of your gas from Algeria rather than putting all your eggs in the same basket? So this is the kind of strategic mistake which has consequences down the line. As for Italy, it had in the early 2010s reduced the amount of gas it bought from Algeria and bought more from Russia. But Italian officials went to Algiers a few years ago to apologize to the Algerians in private. This was all to do with Berlusconi, who was then prime minister, with his love affair with Putin. So the history is checkered. Nonetheless, there is plenty of gas in Algeria to be developed. It's not immediately available, except seven or eight billion cubic feet, uh, meters, sorry. But there is plenty of gas to be developed and to be had in Algeria. Well, look, let, let's, let's look now at, at the competition issue, because you mentioned Spain, as Spain is keen to position itself as the gas hub for North African energy. But as you said, the Italians are, are keen and, and it seems to me have the inside uh, edge on this one. Um, am I right on that? Is Italy uh, ahead of Spain in the game? Well, there are two points. One, Spain, uh, Spain imports, uh, I think, eight to, eight to ten, I can't remember the exact figure, a billion cubic meters of gas uh, from Algeria, mostly uh, through a pipeline which travels directly from Algeria to Spain and some in the form of LNG. On the other hand, the pipeline that runs through Morocco was closed on November the, the 1st by the Algerians after the Moroccans behaved in a way which more or less made the conclusion of foregone. It was really, Moroccan behavior was really extreme. So that pipeline has been closed since November the 1st, but of course could reopen in the future. Spain uh, has regasification capacity, which is at least twice as much as what it requires for its domestic use. 
but it's been prevented from becoming a hub, not so much by the dispute between Algeria and Morocco, but by the French unwillingness to increase the throughput of the pipeline, which runs under the Pyrenees. This is due to the power of French nuclear lobby, and it's, the fight's been going on for 20 years. Maybe one day the French will change their position. I'm not aware that they have to date. Even if the French change their position and you increased the capacity of, of the Trans-Pyrenees pipeline, you would have to upgrade and increase the capacity of the pipelines which run from the five Spanish regasification plants, which were on the coast, three on the Mediterranean, two on the Atlantic, you'd have to increase the capacity of all these pipelines to the French frontier. This is going to take time and money. So, uh, you know, we're not there yet. When it comes to Italy, the pipeline, 40-year-old uh, Enrico Mattei pipeline is running two-thirds full. So adding an extra 9 billion cubic meters of gas in the next two years poses absolutely no technical problems. And the Italians have also an advantage in that the depleted gas fields of the Po Valley could very well be used in the future for storing gas, which is a policy that the European Commission is keen to develop. But Italy is the major partner I think essentially also because of its companies. Spain just simply does not have the companies to match the engineering, the Italian engineering, be it in pipes, in LNG, in uh, refineries. Uh, there is no match. All these factors come into play. And the fact that today there may be some competition uh, between Italy and Spain for extra amounts of LNG, uh, or gas hardly comes as, as a surprise because I would be very blunt. I would say European, the European policy of liberalization of gas markets pursued in the last 20 years has turned the gas market into a bear pit. Now that there's a great shortage of uh, gas, it's become a bear pit. And some people are getting mauled. The weaker ones are getting mauled because it's all a question of price and also political muscle. Mm. Well, yes, that's interesting because the, the Spaniards, uh, according to Bloomberg, uh, have dashed off to have some consultations with the Italians. Uh, what can you tell me about that? Well, the fact of the matter is you've got to look at these contracts, a number of Spanish contracts. I don't know the detail of Spanish contracts because many of them are private. Uh, many of these contracts are two years. They last for two years. They are, they are expiring or in at the moment, this winter, this spring. Uh, no, I don't have the calendar. I don't think anybody apart from the country or companies have the calendar. So, of course, when the contracts approach expiry, first of all, the country providing the gas can use the clauses uh, to increase prices, which has already happened this winter because the price of gas went through the roof. So there are clauses which allow, you know, linked to oil. There are all kinds of complex clauses which allow the seller to change his price if and when circumstances change. Secondly, when contracts expire, 
nothing obliges Algeria to sell the same amount of gas to the same company as in Spain as it has maybe done for the last few years. And here there is an extra political element that comes in, is that a few weeks ago, Spain changed its policy with regard to the Western Sahara, which is a subject of bitter dispute between Morocco, Algeria, the United Nations is involved, and I won't go into details. Spain had uh, previously supported uh, the Polisario, the Western Saharan independence movement, but uh, now, as you say, they've, they've switched ground completely and are accepting Moroccan sovereignty over this disputed region. Now, the change of tack, of course, Spain is absolutely entitled to change its position on the Western Sahara. But this came for many people as a surprise and in very abrupt fashion. It also came a week or 10 days after the head of the Spanish government had rung the Algerian president, Abdelmajid Tebboune, and had a long conversation about cooperation on oil, gas, and economics. So to say that the Algerians felt slighted would be under, underrating it. They felt insulted. I'm not in a position to pass judgment on this, but this political element, uh, this change of tack of the Spanish government, which might be justified in other respects, came at the very worst moment. And there again, we are not in a parlor game. We're in a game when everybody's fighting themselves silly about gas. And so the Algerians are clearly profiting from this situation and nobody can blame them. Yeah, now, yes, as you say, it's a, it's a bear pit and, and it's getting nastier by the day, I think. But, but this issue of the disagreement, the spat between Morocco and Algeria over Western Sahara, that has had implications in terms of the pipeline uh, issue. Let our listeners know what, what the story there is. Well, the story is that the pipeline was built in the early 1990s, and it was, the, the building was strongly encouraged by the Americans, and it sealed what was a policy of relative reconciliation between Algeria and Morocco, led by President Shadli, the then head of state of Algeria, and King Hassan II. The idea was that if you built a pipeline, which would in turn entail a number of industries where gas would be the feedstock, that would bring the two countries closer together. And at the end of the day, they would be able to find with the Polisario, what is called the Saharan Arab Republic, which is recognized by the, the African Union, they would find a way out of this conflict, which goes back to 1975. That was the idea. And for a while, it seemed to work until Algeria had fell into civil war and relations got very bad for all kinds of reasons. Now, the reason the gas pipeline was closed last year. This is a pipeline um, which has been carrying less and less gas in recent years. Some of it goes to Morocco in the form of payment for throughput to sort of a fee. And it's been very useful to Moroccan industry and one or two power plants in the region of Tangiers. But the contract on about the pipeline 
the Moroccan portion of the pipeline was due to be renegotiated last year. The Moroccans kept kicking the ball down the street. And so at one point after the Moroccans had publicly, to put it mildly, insulted the Algerians, uh, together with the Israelis whose foreign minister was visiting Rabat, the Algerians just decided enough was enough. And they announced they were closing the pipeline. All the meantime, they made sure, and they said so publicly, that they would make sure that Spain and Portugal, which also was fed through that pipeline, would not run short of gas. And neither Portugal nor Spain have run short of gas over the past six months. But as I said before, since the contracts with Spain, many of them last two years. So at the end of two years, there is no obligation on the Algerian state or Sonotrack to renew the contract which with whatever Spanish or international company it is selling gas to. It can switch some of that gas to Italy. And the figure mentioned following the visit of Mario Draghi is 9 billion cubic feet. This makes perfect sense because we are speaking of 9 billion cubic uh, meters, I'm sorry, not feet, over a two-year or two-and-a-half-year period. In other words, 4 billion a year. 4 billion a year is an amount the Algerians can afford to spare from their present production. Of course, this might mean that the Spanish get less gas in the next year or two. But all this is perfectly legal. As I said, a market can turn into a bear pit. And that is what we are seeing, not just between Algeria, Spain, Italy. We're seeing it all around. Everybody's scrambling to buy gas because nobody knows how this story with Russia is going to end. Uh, the West has put very heavy sanctions on Russia. It's weaponized finance, bank, central bank reserves and all that. So, of course, in this kind of very aggressive atmosphere all round, be it with weapons, finance, trade, gas, anything can happen. Yeah. And again, I mean, there is then this opportunity as everyone scrambles for gas. And, and to go back to Sonatrack, the Algerian National Energy Company, you know, what shape is its infrastructure in? Uh, how good are its managers and its workforce? Can Sonatrack meet the challenge? This is a very good question. Well, I think there are two or three points to be made. Uh, the first is that Algeria has plentiful reserves of gas. Half the territory of this country, which is the largest in Africa, geographically have not been explored. Even in the areas which have been explored, many areas have not been explored with the modern methods available in the last 10, 15 years. Recent discoveries near Tougourt and at, uh, at Berkin by Eni suggest that there is a lot more gas to be found because geologically, the areas which have not been explored are very similar to the ones which have. Third point, the Algerians boast, according to American statistics, uh, which are very reliable, the third biggest reserves of non-conventional gas in the world, ex equo with Argentina. 
on top of their conventional resources. So Algeria is a vast reservoir of gas. Sonotrack has the technicians. What Algeria lacks is a, an economic policy which accepts reforms all across the range. Now, there is a case for arguing that the only way to move the Algerian leadership and the generals in particular is to get, if Italy and other Western countries, notably Germany, which is discussing buying gas from Algeria, if these countries really put money on the table, and as I understand it, the offers being made, the preliminary offers being made to Algeria to develop gas are well over $100 billion. Now, all these are large figures. Nonetheless, if developed countries show a real willingness to put money where their mouth is and to say, we're going to engage in long-term contracts, i.e. 10, 15-year contracts, we're going to develop this and that gas field, that might be the one way of moving Algeria towards a more modern, a more transparent management, not just of its oil and gas sector, but of its economy. This is why I would argue that when you look at Europe, Algeria, Europe, Africa, in terms of oil and gas, everything is up for grabs today. What has happened in Ukraine has fundamentally changed the tectonic plates. They're moving. How they will move, in what direction, the years ahead will tell us. But it is an extremely interesting situation. The crisis in Ukraine has thrown open a game which seemed to be a closed game and a foregone conclusion, short-term contracts and all the rest of it. Now we are in a different world. It's going to be messy. It's going to be complicated. But let us remember that in Europe, there are at least 15, if not 20 million citizens of North African origin, that there's an enormous amount of trade between Spain, Italy, France, Belgium, Germany, and North Africa. And if we want to confront the problem of illegal immigration and poverty in Africa, we are going to have to take some very bold decisions in Europe, in Brussels. These are difficult decisions, but gas is one of the key factors in this maybe rejigging of our geostrategic thinking. That's the point, really. Gas is part and parcel of a serious rethink, which will not only have to occur in Europe, it will have to occur in North Africa, because this way of behaving between Algeria and Morocco, it's not only due to the way they behave, Europe has its responsibility in the non-solution of the Western Sahara. But somebody somewhere is going to have to, to commit political capital to solving this question of the Western Sahara. James Baker, when he was a UN envoy, the former Secretary of State, when he was the UN envoy to Sahara 20 years ago, said, nobody is willing to put capital into solving this problem, therefore it cannot be solved. Well, the question today is, is Europe, is America, are others, maybe Russia, who knows, are, is China, is uh, Saudi Arabia, 
are some of these countries prepared to put political capital into trying to bring closer two countries which would gain a lot by cooperating and their cooperation would of course be of immense benefit to Europe. So we have all kinds of questions which are being raised at the moment. How, what answers come, how quickly, that will determine, I think, as much as relations with Russia, the future of Europe. It's as simple as that. Another factor too, Francis, coming back to the war and the issue of food insecurity, I mean, in addition to energy prices going through the roof, food prices are going through the roof. And, and we look at, at North Africa, uh, particularly Tunisia, where Saïs Kaïd has carried out his uh, so-called soft coup. Uh, in Algeria, you have Le Pouvoir pretty much still in place. Uh, is there a kind of potential for popular anger to swell up given the, the food insecurity? And would that also help to push uh, the, uh, the Algerian regime to make the sorts of changes you're talking about? Well, I, you know, Tunisia has never had a policy which favored farming. It's favored offshore industry, it's favored tourism, but it has never favored farming. And that is why the interior of Tunisia is so poor. So if Tunisia only had an economic policy where farming, producing, it can't produce all it eats, but it could produce far more than it does today. Algeria is the same story. It's improved the amount of wheat it produces and other vegetables in recent years, but it really needs a revolutionary policy in farming. Um, Morocco has done much better in terms of farming, but nonetheless has problems. So I think that there again, all these problems of farming, of water. They, the problem in the world today is that all these problems go together. Globalization, as it has been conceived, has been in difficulty for some years. And we are now seeing the disadvantages of having to rely on imports for major factors such as food. But if you take, for instance, pharmaceuticals, Algeria today produces many of the pharmaceuticals it needs. Private companies, public companies, joint ventures. Morocco produces all kinds of things like cars. So it can be done. But what is needed with North Africa? And I separate North Africa from the rest of the Middle East because the rest of the Middle East has different problems. In North Africa, unlike Egypt, we do not have populations out of control in numbers with very little means to sustain them. We have countries which are educated where the average level of education in Algeria and Tunisia and in Morocco, though to a lesser degree, is not bad at all. We have millions of people who speak French fluently. They were former French colonies and the younger ones now speaking English. And the problem for Europe is to engage in a real dialogue with these countries. The Mediterranean policy of Europe has been a neo-colonial, a mercantilist policy. It's interested in trade, in gaining advantages to sell European products. It's never treated North Africa as an equal. And this is something which explains why the Barcelona process and all the agreements between Europe and North Africa 
have not really delivered what was expected 30, 40 years ago. So maybe this crisis will force the European leaders to change their software because they have to change their software. Algeria became independent 60 years ago. Tunisia and Morocco more than 60 years ago. The Moroccans will always be polite vis-a-vis -vis the Europeans, but what they think about Europe's economic policies towards them in private, you'd be surprised. The Algerians are much more upfront and they just go for the jugular. And the Tunisians basically say nothing today because they're dependent on Europe and America and the IMF to help them through a very difficult economic phase. So I think that maybe this crisis, which is going to force a reset of many clocks on many subjects, on many issues of economics, maybe this is the opportunity to reset the clock. And Europe will have to learn in the process that preaching democracy is of absolutely no use because for the last 30, 40, 50 years, the West, I include America, have been preaching democracy selectively. Mm. What has been done for Palestine? What has been done in Libya? What has been done in Iraq? The Arabs are very sensitive to this. And Europe is going to have to decide what it wants in the next few decades. That requires clear thinking. That requires new ideas. I don't think it's impossible. It does require bold leadership. And I will conclude on the fact that Mr. Mario Draghi in Algiers does matter because Mr. Draghi is an eminent member of the Western leadership because of the positions he's occupied before he became Italian prime minister. When Mr. Draghi goes to see President Tebun, it's not just the prime minister of Italy going to see the Algerian president. It's more than that. The symbolism is not lost, I think, on anybody. Mm. Well, it's, it's, as you say, a bear pit and the gas debate is going to play out in some very interesting ways in the next months and, and years ahead. Uh, Francis, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I hope I've shed some light on what is a very interesting moment in history. Indeed it is. And yes, you very much have. Thank you, Francis. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Francis Gilles, an associate senior researcher at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs. We welcome your comments. It's been two years since we launched the podcast and our audience has grown tenfold to more than 5,000 listeners a month. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, or other audio platforms. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest Daily Newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, analysts like Francis. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to arabdigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.